Welcome to the latest Pink podcast in the Pink Elephant podcast series, dedicated to leading the way in IT management best practices. Welcome to part three of how to take ITIL processes beyond a maturity level of control with Gary Case and Brian Price. Depending on what your organization size is, the complexity of it is, the, the type of processes that you're implementing, it's not uncommon. You always need an executive sponsor, and that executive sponsor should continue. They don't end when the program ends. You also want to set up some form of a governance, where you call it ITEL governance. I prefer IT service management governance, because that's what we're moving towards, okay? ITEL is just a way to get there, all right? It's really about IT service management. It's about the services. It's not just about the processes anymore. You're going to have a process owner. The process owner does not own people. They own a process. They're fully accountable for development, implementation, continual improvement, reporting on that. You also have a process manager. In small organizations, this will be the same person maybe. In larger organizations, you'll find that the process manager you may actually have would be a global change manager then with local change managers underneath them. Okay. So, and that's what we're trying to show here is that you could have in one business unit or uh, part of your organization, you could have a local change manager in one, one in two, one in three. So you would end up with three local change managers that could report up to a global change manager is a very common occurrence. Process managers are really, they're accountable for the infrastructure group or application group. I always want to include that because everybody thinks ITIL is only for infrastructure and applications doesn't get to play in our sandbox. It's for IT. It's called the IT infrastructure library, which was their first mistake calling it infrastructure. But ITIL infrastructure, hardware, software, documentation. Okay? They're accountable to the process owner for compliance. Okay? So within their area, they're a process manager. Not only are they a have certain responsibilities and accountabilities, but they also want to help with compliance in there. And you can set up org structures many, many, many different ways, and this is just a high level talking about some typical roles that you need to be thinking of. So the first thing is you have to look at if you're having someone who is going to be a process owner, they have got to be at a high enough level in the organization to influence across all the lines of business all the functional IT groups that you have out there. They have got to be able to influence it because you cannot have one group say, I'm not playing when everybody else wants to play. Everyone has to play to make this work. You can also uh, make sure that you're going to have your process managers have to be at a significant level within an organization. Remember, they may not own people either. They may or may not. But they have to be able to influence within that vertical structure. So these are some things just to consider, and if you don't fill the roles with the right people and keep them filled, you're going to run into problems. And then this is the HR thing, is now you have to define for each one of their roles what's their responsibilities, what's their skill requirements that you're looking for, how do we hire for that type of a role, how do we make sure that we have all the job descriptions and everything else lined up. Sometimes you run into organizations, you have to work through this, the word manager cannot be used. So, you know, change manager, we can't use that word in an organization. I've had this happen a number yeah. of times because the word manager means you manage people. Okay, so then you have to change to something else. But the concept is what we have here. If you read the pure ITEL books, version twos, 
it gives you the perception and, and reality, I guess, that the process owner and the process manager are one and the same person. That can be that case for smaller organizations, but as best practices always evolve, we are always seeing it separated out now. Okay? You own a process as a process owner, and then you also go on ahead and you have the uh, ownership for the process manager at a different level. It's a different person. Now, one thing that's not shown up here that I have done in some organizations for engaging the directors is I create a process sponsor role. Okay? So, in other words, I want to get the IT directors that are reporting directly to the CIO, who should be the executive sponsor, that they are a sponsor of this process. So I want them to manage all this crap that goes on and barriers where you got infighting at this political level. They have to manage that. So it makes the process owner's job easier, therefore the process manager's job easier. So that's just another role that works in some organizations. I've worked in many organizations, and it's local. One, 300, uh, what are they, got 350 people in IT, all, all within one basic two buildings, and they still have, uh, I think, four local change managers. Okay, Because, again, you want to build your process. One of the things that you want to do to not only reach a control level, but to continuously improve, you always want to validate your process around two things. One is efficiency, and one is effectiveness. Okay, And with change management, as an example, we gain efficiency with change management by having change managers have full authority to uh, do the filtering, logging, I mean, all the activities, but primarily what we want them to do uh, is looking at is the impact assessment, risk, risk assessment, cost assessment, uh, and giving an approval so that then release management can then begin building. Release management does all their building activities, and here's a one-line thing in the ITEL book of change management, which I can't find to save my life today, but it is there one line that says the change manager is also responsible for reviewing the change before it goes into production. So I want that level of approval based what are the test results, what's the level. So your change manager has full authority to do all of that work on minor changes. Okay, But a change manager may have very specific knowledge in this area, but not the other parts of the organization. So that would be why you would want to have maybe a local change manager split up. But that does not mean every box that you have today on your org chart has its own change manager. It may be you have one for a couple areas, you know, spread out. So you can do it. Again, you know, the old consulting answer is always it depends, but you have to really determine what does it depend on. And in some cases, this is to help guide efficiency so that you have a level of authority. Uh, because what you do is you create a bottleneck at your change advisory board meetings if you have all of these minor changes coming in. And I worked with one organization. I told them, don't go that route. And they says, we want to for learning purposes that everybody can see everything that's going on. It was a disaster from day one. You know, I got a call that night from the program manager because I wasn't on site. It was their first cab meeting. And uh, they had, I don't know how many changes to review and it says, well, how long did it take? Four hours. Well, what'd you get done? One. Yeah. You know, and it just cascaded from that. And so finally we got them to commit to allow their change managers to authorize the minor changes to do the whole thing. 
uh, and that gained efficiency. It took it out of the cab meetings. They're accountable for it, so if it screws up, I'm coming to see that change manager because you're, you're the one. And so that way it's an efficiency gain that you can take a look at. On a global basis, you may find it's even more complex that not only now do you have maybe a, a global manager, you're going to have a regional manager, and then you're going to have local managers. So, I mean, it can get very complex as you set up your roles and responsibilities, but what you want to make sure is you're balancing that efficiency and effectiveness. Because if you don't have that in line, you're going to run into some problems. If things become inefficient and it's creating a bottleneck, I'll go outside the process, test it, see if I can get away with it. Would I want a technical manager doing maybe incident management? Probably no. Would I want them doing problem management? Maybe. Would I want them doing availability capacity? Maybe. But the point is well taken is that people joined IT to deal with computers, not with people. Processes is about people, correct? So you're going to have to have that people component in there somewhere. So I would say it would really depend upon what process it is and what are they bringing to the table. But remember, it's about the ability to influence and ability to process think. See, we have this whole area where we always have done uh, domain thinking as opposed to uh, domain management versus service management. Okay? We manage our domains. We're in charge of servers or desktops or an application. And we do that, and we do it very well. Thank you very much. But we don't have this concept that just because I rebooted, because, by the way, I can reboot whenever I want. I rebooted. I don't care because I brought my product, my domain component, back up. I could care less if I killed everybody else that was trying to connect to it. Okay? Service management is saying, hmm, maybe this is a little different. I don't have the ability at 2 o'clock in the afternoon to hit that button. Because some people have been put in process manager roles that had no business being in a process manager role. They have got to be good facilitators, uh, negotiators, all kind of influencers. They've got to be able to do a lot of things. Okay. I was going to say, one of the things that we, um, coming from an education standpoint, I always like when I have discussions like this, people always say, well, how do I know what structure is best for me? Which way should I design it? Um, in virtually every course we teach, other than the foundations course, we always talk about building authority matrices. Talk about the Archie model, a lot of people use the RACI model, there's the RASCI model, and people see that, and we get them to practice it in the course, and they forget all about it. They go back, document the process, assign roles randomly, and then they wonder why things don't work. The intent for those tools is not just to see do we have somebody there to do it, but do we have the right person there doing it with the right skill sets and with the right authority level? And do we have enough of them doing it? That tool, as simple as it looks and as, as much of a pain in the butt it is, as it is to fill it out, is extremely valuable to identify what structure here is going to work for us. How many process managers do we need? Where do we need them? And what do we want them to do? So don't forget about some of those tools that are there to help you get answers to these questions besides us telling you it depends. Your governance team should be set up of your process owners. And a part of your governance team should be looking at integration issues also, mm -hmm. especially as we add on new processes or we improve a process. What's that doing to the other processes that are there? In some organizations, it starts off as part-time roles, and then they figure out soon that it is a full-time commitment for not everyone, but for some of them. Uh, sometimes a global position, depending on what they're looking at, uh, or as a process manager, if there's just one, in some cases may be more full-time than others. 
Um, you know, you're going to have an incident manager role, and you know, that's you know full time. Change manager often can become a full time, depending on what kind of administrative. Like, do they have change coordinators, uh, change administrators, anyone like that that can help support them? And really, what are you looking for them to do? So I've seen it move both from part-time to full-time and full-time to part-time as you mature and you gain efficiencies. If you're in doubt of what kind of role it's going to take, I'd put them full-time yeah. to start, monitor. And as you build maturity and efficiency gains, and maybe you can back them off. Uh, but again, that takes a commitment from senior yeah. management because now somebody has to do their daytime job. You know, being a process owner, being a process manager, um, you know, and well, process owner is part time for sure, but the pro- unless they're combined, but the process manager role, I mean, they got real jobs too, so you got to factor in how much of their time is going to be involved uh, in that. Just remember, one of the reasons people implement uh, ITIL as an example is to break down the silos, okay? And what we do is we, if we start creating a service management, we create another silo, so we just have to make sure we manage it. And no matter which way you slice and dice it, and I've seen every kind of situation, we go into organizations where they tell us you cannot move the boxes, and other organizations will tell us that you better move the boxes when we're done, okay? Um, But the key thing is that once you start thinking in terms of process, you become a matrix organization by default, okay? So you're going to have dotted line reporting you know, two process managers, process owners, et cetera, no matter how you lay out your boxes, you're going to have some of that. But, yeah, you can have a direct. I mean, that can work that they can own the people. But uh, in most cases, and especially at a process owner level, because they're really the process. Thank you for listening to part three of how to take ITIL processes beyond a maturity level of control with Gary Case and Brian Price. Please join us next week for part four.